Please support The Historian's Podcast by making a donation to our fund drive. To donate, click the GoFundMe button on our website, bobcudmore.com. Hello, I'm Paul Craddock. I am a historian of medicine from uh, Britain. I have written a book called Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of Transplant Surgery, and that covers the history of transplant surgery from, well, ancient times until really pretty much the present day. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. As soon as I heard this title, uh, Paul Craddock, I thought, gee, I want to talk to this man. We often conceive of transplant surgery as modern, but in your book, Spare Parts, The Story of Medicine Through the History of a Transplant Surgery, uh, published by St. Martin's here in America, you talk about centuries ago, you show how transplant surgery is really ancient. Uh, what body parts were transplanted in ancient India? In ancient India, well, the first, these are the first mentions, the first um, historical instances of transplants, and it was skin, skin grafting. So these were transplants from, I don't want to describe the technique because it can be quite um, grisly, but, <laughs> but no. transplants of skin from the forehead to refashion a nose or a lip or some part of the, sh- of the face that had been lost through uh, fighting, you know, sword wounds or punishment or something, something of that fashion. And yes, it's the first mention is really the 6th century BC in the Sushruta Samhita, and that's a, an ancient Indian surgical text. Uh, and even, even then it was considered... Well, the, the procedures described in that text were considered traditional even then, so it's likely far, far older. The, the procedure is actually seems to, it seems to be based on horticultural grafting, you know, grafting um, apple trees and pear trees and that kind of thing. It's it's the same uh, procedure, more or less, just transposed from uh, the, the the plant world to the um, to the world of humans. What about uh, Europe uh, or the West, the West, if as we call it these days? Uh, when did uh, transplantation uh, surgery uh, take hold there? Well, sometime between ancient times and the 15th century, we've got references—not much detail, but references of, of those similar, same kinds of skin grafts happening in Italy. Uh, they they start to appear about the 1400s. Uh, but it was really in 1549 when we have the, you know, the start of, well, I think of it as the start of modern transplant history. And that's because up until that point, uh, skin grafts were, uh, the procedures had evolved slightly. They took um, skin from other parts, not just the forehead, from the forearm, for example. And they were an operation performed exclusively by secretive families of Italian peasants. Hmm. So if you'd lost your nose through any of those um, many, many ways you could lose your nose, and including syphilis in that, um, you, could, you, could have a, you could have a nose mask, you know, a, like a little thing to cover your lost nose, or you could, if you knew one of these families, you could get them to craft you a new nose from your own skin. Uh, and that that was a secret operation until, as I say, 1549, when this surgeon called Leonardo Fioravanti, 
when he knocks on the door of one of these surgeries and he convinces them that his relative had been fighting in a, in a war and he wants to you know check out this operation before he puts his relative through it uh, and he convinces these this family of surgeons to let him watch um and he pretends to not like all the blood he pretends to be disgusted by it all but really he's taking very careful note because he's a surgeon himself and he wrote up that procedure in his own book so he stole it it was kind of medical espionage um, <laughs> Uh, and and it and it became uh it it came to be uh, a medical operation a surgical operation that was discussed in universities sort of 50 years later but it took it took that one um thief you could say uh to 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 bridge you know the the gap between uh, it being a peasant operation and an operation that could and would be performed by legitimate Surgeon. Why did they keep it secret? Financial reasons, one presumes. You know, if, if no one else can, can do, that op do the operation, you have to go to that family of surgeons. This gentleman brought it out more into the light of day after 1549. That's right, yes. Um, he wasn't very well trusted, though, because he, he valued these operations that were peasant operations, like the skin graft. And other other um, other kinds of remedies, uh, herbal remedies as well. He, he he trusted the peasants. He trusted the wise women. He trusted the soldiers, who um, who knew what worked through experience. Whereas the medical establishment at the time uh, based its knowledge, as you as you know, on um, on ancient texts and translations of translations of those ancient texts. So they didn't really have very much time in the medical establishment for any concept of transplant. In fact, um, Vesalius, uh, the famous anatomist, he thought that a transplant of skin was actually a transplant of muscle, and of course it wasn't. The um, peasants who were doing, doing this were trying to repair, let's say, noses that were knocked off in fights or illness or both or, or whatever? Well, all of the above, really. Um, you know, wars would inflict saber wounds. You had a history of dueling, so people would lop off each other's noses uh, that way. Um, syphilis was rife in Italy at that time. And you, you also had people very concerned not only about, you know, sort of being masculine and... and um, spoiling for fights and things, you had a concern over appearance too, that, that um, you know, you, you would want to preserve your, um, your looks. So this was kind of like plastic surgery of its day. It absolutely was, yes. It's, in fact, it's, it's usually written as the birth of plastic surgery. Well, let's talk about some other forms of transplantation. We're talking with Paul Craddock, who is as Honorary Senior Research Associate in the Division of Surgery and Interventional Sciences at UCL Medical School in London, England. His PhD explored how transplants have for centuries invited reflection on human identity, a subject in which he's also lectured internationally. He's written a book about history of transplant surgery called Spare Parts. Well, let me bring up the you know, what I think is another theme of 
things that we want to talk to you about, the idea of human identity. Now, you were initially talking about giving me, let's say, a new nose uh, after I got wounded by a, in a sword fight. Um, but was there a, a thought even then that, oh, you know, I've got a no- nose from somebody else, and now have I become something different than I was? Well, the reality is both more extreme and less extreme than that. Uh, you wouldn't have a nose from somebody else. Um, you'd have it from another part of your body. So it would be a transplant of skin from your arm, say, to your to your face. The person who codified all of this knowledge uh, in the late 16th century, so this is 1597, and the, the, the technique of skin grafting was codified and illustrated for the first time. Uh, by, in fact, it was by Fioravanti's student's student, and he was called Gaspare Tagliacozzi. And he, he, he depicted this technique, and it takes, you know, two or three pages to do that. It's not, it doesn't take very long. It uh, doesn't take very much space. Uh, but his book is massive. You know, it's many pages long. And that's because he had to convince his peers that he wasn't creating a monster by deeming, by presuming to improve God's image, you know, God's um, idea of perfection, the human face. He was actually trying to restore it. He was entering into an argument, which was um, all all over the place at the time, about you know what um, what is natural and what constitutes artificial. That's a debate was had in many arenas at the time. Gardening, for example. Um, if you go to a, a garden dating from the Renaissance times in Italy, you won't see very many. You might see some flowers, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but really the garden will be, um, it will be full of statues of ancient Greek and Roman chimera, depictions of myths, of monstrosities, uh, it will be well ordered, and that's because gardens at the time were seen like the surgery of the time. They were seen as being um, manifestations of this strange in-between sort of category of not quite natural, because you know human hands had fiddled with it and, and rearranged it, but also not quite artificial because those materials were natural. So it's this idea of interrupting nature and changing its direction, that was potentially very troublesome. Now, where identity comes into that in an interesting way is a few, cent- a few centuries, not a few centuries, a few decades later, mm-hmm. at, the beginning of, at the beginning and middle of the 17th century, when you, know, you had these nature versus art sort of debate initially you had them as kind of warnings what could go wrong if you if you fiddle with god's perfect image but in the in the next century you have blood transfusions that were inspired by that notion that the boundary of one body doesn't necessarily have to stop at its skin in other words you can take personalities you can take bits of your soul and you can through blood transfusion 
you can move them from one place to another. So you get this, you know, this sense that the identity of a person is whole. It's an essence, and it can be moved from place to place. And that's what's interesting about blood transfusion when it first appears, is that it's a way to, to even divide something that people considered to be whole, like a soul, like a personality. There's a lot I could say about blood transfusion, but to, to address your point about, about identity and how that sort of changed or morphed throughout these quite long periods, um, once you get to the 18th century, you get, of course, a much more modern world appearing, don't you? You get shopping, you get uh, uh, fashion, you get um, coffee shops sort of popping up in places like London. You get the modern world, in other, in other words. And, and with that modern world, with the capitalism that comes with that, with the um, new sense of there being a class system, you also get a new idea of what identity is. So you don't have that transplantation. You can't have that transplantation, transplantation of essences anymore because that no longer makes sense when you identify yourself not with the essence of your soul, but with um, the belongings that you have, what you have bought, who uh, who you associate with, what you associate with, what has been done to you. You know, it's, it's, it's a more modern idea of, of identity, of being an individual. And that brings new kinds of transplants, tooth transplants, which comes from dentistry, which is a, a profession that emerged in that sort of uh, mixture of there being a, a new sense of money being involved, and science also into the mix. So dentistry is really a scientific approach to the to the mouth and teeth, and that was open only to certain people who were interested in fashion, interested in looking good and wanting to get ahead. And that led to people transplanting the teeth of poor children into the mouths of rich men and women who could have... So them. one presumes that the, the, the teeth are, in a sense, stolen from the poor children? Um, I think, I think not technically. I mean, it, it amounts to that because the children are so poor, their families are so poor, they can't afford to feed themselves. Um, but they have teeth so they can enter into a, a financial transaction. So they can swap their teeth for money. Uh, so it's, I, 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 I prefer to think of it as them being cajoled. Into giving up their teeth. Absolutely, yes. Well, let's bring it... Uh, the, the story up to, to a more modern uh, period. You talk about the uh, race to transplant the first human heart. That has been done, uh, hasn't it? It has. It was done in 1967 uh, by Christian Bernard, South African surgeon. When it comes to organ transplants, this is this is of course where most people tend to start researching transplantation. In fact, it's the only era of transplantation that's pretty well known. And in fact, when I became interested in transplants 11 years ago, I think it was, um, I started there. I started looking at, you know, the first kidney transplants, so that's 1936, 1952, the first successful one, right up to that first heart transplant. 
in 67 and beyond. It's only after visiting these earlier periods and spending, in fact, most of my time researching those earlier periods, but I've come to some kind of perspective on their of the significance of that heart transplant. Mm-hmm. Because everything at the moment, everything that people write about transplant surgery seems to be set into orbit around that. But actually, I think it's, for me, it's, it's indicative of a post-war approach to telling stories about surgery. These transplants happened after the war, of course, after the Second World War. And that was a time when people wanted stories that were about, I suppose you could say, human achievement. They wanted mm-hmm. optimistic stories of, of, of super talented people succeeding on the one side. On the other side, they wanted human drama. You know, they wanted human interest stories, these dramatic lives, the dramatic ways in which lives have been saved. And mm-hmm. we still have that. We still have that to a degree. It was also a period, by the way, when doctors and hospitals and other medical institutions started to really get interested in PR, in public relations, understanding the importance and the power behind fashioning your story and putting that across. So there's there's also that sense that these stories are designed for our consumption. And I suppose that, for me, that's where we still are. We're still in that that era of, you know, identifying new, the, the, you know, the cutting edge for new techniques, for new science. But I suppose we are also in previous eras because, you know, we still use, going right back to the very beginning, we still use agricultural metaphors to describe transplants. We harvest body parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we when you're talking about stem cells, you, you talk about seeding, you talk about, we talk about grafting, absolutely. And these are all relics, I suppose you could say, of, the, of, of, of that much, much earlier time. We still think in terms of our body parts, I suppose you could say, um, embodying us in a way. So we talked about those blood transfusions where we, in fact, we didn't talk about those blood transfusions in that much detail, but, you know, those blood transfusions in the 16th, uh, sorry, the 17th century, they were transfusions between animals and humans. Really? And that, really, and that's, and the reason for that is because um, we, in that period, didn't know very much about blood as a chemical. We thought it, you know, it might contain our soul it might contain humors you know it might contain some kind of numinous or magical quality but we had an idea of a circulatory system so the transfusion actually has a mechanical angle this sort of new world sort of science new science so to speak um colliding with that ancient world and you, you can connect two circulatory systems into one and that allows a transfusion and so quality so people thought that they weren't transfusing blood to replace lost blood that's a much more modern idea that's sort of that's 
16, uh, sorry, 1816, when that was first sort of thought about, that blood transfusion would replace lost blood. You were transfusing mm. blood to transfuse a quality. So famously, the quality of a lamb uh, being placid. Well, it's not actually, if you've ever, if you ever come across a lamb, they're not placid. They jump. No, that's true. Very, very yeah. energetic, actually. But they have this, this reputation of the purity and the calmness for some reason. Uh, so lamb's blood transfusions were used to treat conditions like insanity. And actually, it looked, it looked like it, it looks like it works because you can take a little bit of lamb's blood or any blood that's incompatible with your body. You mm -hmm. can, your body can take that. Um, I mean, it will react very badly and you'll become very, very ill. And that will tire you out. Talk about Dr. Bernard, Barnard, you know, it's obvious probably, but what we're talking about are transplanting human organs from recently deceased people. Used to know somebody who uh, was an organ getter for a, a local medical center here in uh, upstate New York, uh, racing to the scene of a, of a death for a human heart or a kidney or, or whatever. In this year, some doctors at University of Maryland School of Medicine performed the transplant of a genetically, genetically engineered pig heart to a human recipient. What are some of the questions raised by uh, this operation? It's remarkable. The technology is remarkable. And it's, it's really, as someone who works in a division of surgery, it's really encouraging you know, to see the marriage of disciplines, of cloning, of um, stem cell uh, science, and of transplantation. Um, and it, it reminds me of what came before as well. It isn't new to think about think to think about replacing human parts with animals, with animal parts. And something we haven't talked about, which is kidney dialysis, and the idea that a, a body part doesn't have to resemble or be an original body part. So a kidney doesn't have to be a human kidney in order to do the job of a kidney. Mm -hmm. You can sort of abstract that that function so you can you can use sausage skin <laughs> for instance to, to filter blood um, but you can also use the organs of other animals such as such as pigs I mean there are many many uh, technological considerations that would stop you doing that most seriously uh, being most serious one being hyperacute rejection so the idea that you know the organ would start to be rejected by the body that it's implanted into. Uh, but that's where the interdisciplinary collaboration comes from. Uh, but scientifically, I think it's an extremely sensible direction to push it. And mm. I think it's the culmination of a lot of things that, that have happened before. And I take all the points about animal cruelty and the potential ethical considerations that people have raised. I guess my question, which is, well, I don't know if it's any, of any import or not, why the pig? And why not a, a baboon heart? I mean, is it true that we don't want to transplant body parts from creatures who are, are more like us? No, baboon hearts, uh, that, that was, they were used, well, there's a, a famous case of baby spay in 1984 um, as a transplant of a baboon heart. Uh, and baboon's teeth, incidentally, were used in the, some of the earlier tooth transplants in the late 17th century. Um, 
I think pigs, you'd have to ask a scientist for an exact response to that question. But as far as I, um, as far as I'm aware, pigs are fairly similar to humans in terms of size. And it's, it's, it makes it, you know, they're genetically fairly close to us, if I understand it. And it's, it's, it's very easy to breed. They're cheap. And it's, it seems to be an, an easier place to, to take those organs from. But you, you would have to ask a, a Stem, uh, uh, sorry, a, a transplant scientist about that, I think, for a, for a better, more comprehensive answer. But what do you think, I mean, are we just going to be proceeding with transplant surgery, more and more things? I, I was thinking myself, do I have any transplants? Well, I guess the only thing I have is I had a knee replaced with, uh, you know, something that's not uh, an animal part, but a uh, something that was created out of plastic. Uh, is that where we're going in in surgery? That we're going to uh, be the the bionic men and and women of in the future? Well, that's really goes to the heart of what a transplant is. Um, you, you're describing an implant, really, um, I suppose. But a transplant for me, for a transplant to be a transplant, it has to have grown in some way in another location and then uprooted and then plant it again. So there has to be this sense of a body um, sort of it, it being severed from one place and then finding its roots in another. But I think, I think um, there'll be more, m much more transplant to come because that's how bodies work, isn't it? They, the body parts uh, work together. They meld themselves together and they work as a whole. Well, Paul Craddock, I thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, he is author of Spare Parts, the story of medicine through the history of transplant surgery. A researcher at a medical school in London, England, Paul Craddock has lectured internationally on transplant surgery history. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore. Cheerio. Video, yes. Another podcast we've done on medical history focused on a young American army doctor, Stuart Alexander, who concluded in the explosion of an American ship with a cargo of mustard gas in World War II that the deadly gas could slow the spread of cancer. He was a young American doctor who had volunteered to serve early in the war and he had got, received special training in chemical weapons. So when there was this disastrous bombing in the port of Bari on December 2nd of 1943, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sailors were killed and wounded and dying of mysterious symptoms, he was called in to investigate what had happened. And Dr. Alexander prepared a detailed report on the Bari casualties, that noted how poison gas depressed the white blood cell count of the people it affected, or first he determined that uh, poison gas was present there. Did Dr. Alexander realize that this effect of mustard gas would have medical application? He did. He, he was called in to investigate this accident. It was, a, it was a poison gas, a mustard gas accident, but it had been denied because the Allies were covering it up for fear that Hitler would learn of it and retaliate. 
So he first determined that it was mustard gas poisoning that was killing so many of our own soldiers. It was a self-inflicted wound, if you will, um, and, uh, and that it was being covered up. And then he wrote this classified report after examining hundreds of, of the autopsy reports and medical files. And he realized that mustard gas attacked white blood cells. And he immediately realized that if it could slow fast-dividing white blood cells, which were the same kinds of malignant cells which cause cancer, then mustard gas could possibly slow or stop the spread of cancer. That's Jeanette Conant discussing her book, The Great Secret, the classified World War II disaster that launched the war on cancer. Her podcast is available for download on bobcudmore.com. Scroll down to episode 339 of The Historians from October 9th, 2020. Please support The Historians podcast by making a donation to our fund drive. To donate, click the GoFundMe button on our website, bobcudmore.com.